The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. If you have your Bibles, would you grab them? Would you open with me to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. Uh, last week, we, we, we talked about the importance of pushing back against our temptation to wander, if you remember. And we talked about this danger that comes from within, within us, within us as the church, to wander away from the gospel, the simple things, and to wander away from the, the things that God has revealed to us, and for us to, to kind of wander into different doctrines and Our text uses the word myths and speculations. And uh, we talked about this temptation going way, 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 way back. Uh, We even went all the way back to the garden because the enemy does not have new tricks. Uh, We we talked about in that first temptation in Genesis 3 where the serpent said, did God actually say that? And then said, no, 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 no. He didn't actually mean that. Don't listen to him. He just knows that when you reach out and you take that fruit, your eyes are going to be opened. You're going to know what he knows. You're going to have the secret sauce. Just reach out for it. Reach out. You can take it. You want that, right? And so that temptation that we saw, it's the temptation to lose our simple satisfaction with what God has revealed to us, to search after more, to speculate for more. We called this temptation gospel fatigue. And, and the way I defined it, gospel t- fatigue is that temptation we have to just kind of move on. Like, can we move on now? Get to the meat? Can we get to something deeper? Um, can we graduate from the gospel? And let's push in deeper, right? That's gospel fatigue. And, and just like, it's just like the garden that we would seek to just reach out for a little more. Just a little bit more. And what we see in, in this early church, what we see in this letter, is that there's a certain group of people within this church, who are giving themselves over to other things, other issues. And these things are distracting them from the gospel. It's like grabbing for the other fruit. And this morning, um, in our text today, we get to take a step deeper into this. And uh, what I'll do, I want to start us off, I'm going to read our text. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 1, 5 through 7. Okay, 1 Timothy 1, 5 through 7. Let me, let me read it for us. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. All right, let's start from the beginning of this. The aim of our charge. Um, The aim means our goal, our purpose. It's a word, telos. We still use this sometimes, but it's that final goal. It's, It's like if you're an archer, the aim is that for this arrow to find its place in the center of the bullseye. That's the aim. That's what he's, that's what Paul is, is, is how he's using this word, the aim of our what? Of our charge. This is the same charge, by the way, that we saw last week. And last week, he, he says, I urged you when I was 
uh, heading out to Macedonia, to remain in Ephesus so that what? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any doctrine, other doctrine, devote themselves to these myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So this charge then, is a gospel stewardship. It's a protection of the truth, of, of, the, of the gospel. And they had wandered off. They had wandered off. And so Paul says here, the aim of our charge, the bullseye of this kind of protection for the church, the aim is love. Now I want to rush past this too quickly because this is really important. If you think about it, Paul could have said so many things here, so many good things. He could have said, um, you know, the aim is to protect the church. That's a great aim. The aim is to defend the truth of the gospel. The aim is unity. The aim is truth. He could have said a lot of things, good things. But what he says is love, that the reason behind all the good things is love. The bullseye is love. And, okay, I want to ask you put your finger or your ribbon in, uh, in 1 Timothy. If you're digitally, you can just ignore this. And, and head with me to the left for a moment uh, to the gospel of Mark. To the gospel of, uh, of Mark. Um, I want to read one of, a cross-reference for us. And it maybe isn't one that you think of immediately or that comes to your mind in this. Um, but it's really important. Mark, and this is in chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Jesus is having a fairly typical day. Uh, he is clashing with scribes and Pharisees and um, the important people of power. He's clashing with them. And in, in Mark 12, 28, um, here's what they're doing. So the scribes come together. They heard the disputes going on. And, and seeing that Jesus was just nailing these answers... I'm paraphrasing this. This is the real translation. This is the Justin translation here. Um, they ask him, which commandment is, most, is the most important of all? Which is an absolutely ridiculous question. It's a trick question, like asking a mom, which child do you love the most, right? It's a, it's a ridiculous question. And they asked it for one purpose, to trick him, to catch him, to trip him up, to pin him down, to accuse him so they could trap him. And you have to assume that when they asked this, they thought, nailed it. Like, we got him. We got him on this one. And uh, here's the thing, though. Jesus answered, and he says, the most important is, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, verse 31, you shall love <clears throat> your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Okay. Although this question they asked was meant to trip up Jesus, we get the benefit from our seat here today of benefiting from this question that was meant to trip up Jesus because Jesus, what he does here is he says, take it all, take it all, take, your, take this, and he, what he says is, you want to know what it's all about? You want to know what it boils down to? And he gives us this summary, and he says, do you want to know what the, most, the single most important thing? Do you want to know what the final aim, the bullseye, what is it? Love. Jesus says, love God, love others. Love God, love others. When you do that, you don't miss the important stuff. Love God, 
love others. This has often been called the great command. Love God, love others. Um, So let me ask, like, how do we do that? How do we take this command, love God, love others, and how do we apply it to us together today as the church? Maybe you weren't asking that, but thank you for asking that, because if you keep your finger here, we're going to be flipping back and forth between these two, and you head back to the right again to, um, to 1 Timothy, um, as you look at this, the aim of our charge is love. Love. The aim, the bullseye of this charge to steward the gospel well is love. Love of God, love of others. To put it differently, one way that you and I, that we together can fulfill the great command to love God and love others, one way that we do this faithfully is to steward the gospel well together as a church. One way we love each other well is to protect our church from false doctrine, to protect our church, to speak truth and love, to make sure that main things remain the main things. And we don't reach out to that other fruit. We do this in love. We do these things for love. Love is our target. And it's not only love, though. If you look, it says, the aim of our charge is love that issues out from. This is, this is like, it comes out. It flows out. And what, what come, what are, where is it flowing out of? Three things. If you look at the text. From a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Okay. Moment, moment of honesty here. I'm going to pause. This seems like a pretty high bar. Um, because I know me, and you know you. And is it really possible to have a pure, pure heart? Um, to have a perfectly clean conscience, a completely sincere faith? Is that even possible? Here's the thing. And we're going to deal with this all together all through this morning. But I think there are two tendencies, and I'm going to represent them in extremes, okay? Extreme pendulum swings. Um, Two tendencies, and by the way, both of them are not helpful, okay? Two tendencies that we might feel in ourselves with a text like this. Tendency number one, on this hand. Maybe you hear this and you think, of course my heart is pure. Of course my conscience is clean and my faith Oh, it is sincere. Of course, um, because I'm awesome. You wouldn't say that, but you, you might. You, you think that. Um, and, and, and so on this hand, your tendency might be to trust yourself and to think I'm always right. Pendulum over here. Maybe you're on the other side, and that pendulum swings way over here to this side. Tendency number two is the tendency to say, woe is me. To say, you know what, my heart is never really pure. My conscience, I can always find some dirt. And my faith, I guess it can always be a bit more sincere. So on this hand, you will very rarely feel the credibility to speak. Because, whoa, who am I? So with tendency number one, you're tempted to be quick to speak. I mean... You call it like it is, you drop truth bombs on everyone even when they're not asking for them because you see it clearly. With over here, you're tempted to be timid 
to never speak out. Because who am I? Who am I? Okay, both of these tendencies, I represented the extremes, um, are unhealthy for you as a person, as a follower of Jesus, and unhealthy for us as a church. Um, and, and listen, for, for those who are over here and you're tempted to speak too quickly, um, you know who you are. You do. I'm not even going to pick on you anymore. You know you. You know who you are. Um, maybe the single best thing that you can do to demonstrate your love for God and your love for others is to be slow to speak and to be quick to listen. That might be the single greatest way you demonstrate your love for your brothers and sisters. And yet on the other hand, for those who are over here who are tempted to be timid, to think you're never worthy enough, never good enough, listen, the single greatest way potentially that you could demonstrate your love for God and love for others is for you to step up and step out and to speak truth and love. And this is, this is so hard here, but the church is not served well by either of the extremes, the prideful, overconfident, know-everythings, or the timid, underconfident, know-nothings. The church isn't served well in these, in these ways because the key, the grand goal, the grand aim is what? It's still love. It's love. And, and it's not just to be right or to be heard um, or to be liked. Our final goal, our grand goal, our aim, our bullseye is love. And it's love from a pure heart, conscience, and faith. And I want to look at these in turn. Um, and I want to start with uh, the, the heart, the heart. So when you see heart in the New Testament, it's the place within us that, that it's like the seat of, of our mind, will, and emotions. It's not that organ that's going dum, 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 dum in your body. That's not what it's referring to. Um, in this context, it's the place within us where the Holy Spirit has done the work. It's the thing when, when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit doing a work on, in us, shaping us, regenerating us, saving us, that work that he does on us, according to Scripture, it's done on our heart, transforms our heart. Um, and it's the place then that from that, all of our actions flow out from that's the heart. So when Paul says here, pure heart, want you to hear me. He's not just talking about our attempts to be pure and our attempts to be perfect. It's not what Paul's talking about with this. When Paul says pure heart, he's referring to the work that the Holy Spirit does on the heart of a believer. When we are made pure through the power of Christ, we are made pure. And it's through the power of God in our hearts. I got to tell you, as hard as you want to try, you cannot make yourself pure. And you know that about you. I know that about me. Um, we can't. But church, Jesus does that through the power of his spirit in our hearts. It reminds me of the prayer of David in Psalm 51 when he says, create in me a clean heart. <laughs> oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. A pure heart is a regenerated heart. It's the heart of a believer that's been purified by the power of God. That's what this is. And so when Paul says pure heart here, he's talking about that heart. 
Love comes from a transformed, pure heart through the power of God. I won't spend as long with the others. Conscience. Let's go to the second. Uh, Conscience. Good conscience. The conscience is that inner awareness that we have of what is right and what is wrong. It's our inner sense of morality. What's right, what is wrong. And the word good here means that we've searched ourselves. We're not hiding anything. We're acting from a place of good or clear conscience. Um, And so what we see here is we have this heart that is pure or purified by the power of the Holy Spirit and a conscience that is clear or good. And then lastly, we have faith. Um, Faith here is that trust that we have in God. It's the belief that we have in God. And notice it's not just faith, but it is sincere faith. The best way to understand this word is uh, sincere is to think about it like authentic or genuine or real. In other words, more than just words. A faith that goes deeper than words. That leads us to action. So this points to real faith, real trust in Christ that is genuine and authentic and that is real. So if you put all of these together... Um, What we see is we have a heart that is pure through the power of Christ, a conscience that is clear, and a faith that is sincere or authentic or real. Paul says that love comes from that. Comes from that. So love of God, love of others, comes from a heart that is first purified by Christ, a conscience that is clear in terms of morality, and a genuine trust in Christ that is deeper than our words. Okay, you might hear all of that and say, okay, like, this is overkill. We get it. Why are you spending so much time uh, defining these things? Here's the thing. It's because we need to understand from where we can swerve. Here's what I mean. Verse six. Um, Certain persons, again, these still are nameless at this point. He's about to name drop some of them. But right now, they're still unidentified certain persons, Um, certain persons by what? By swerving from these. What are the these? What we just talked about. Um, What we just talked about. It's the love of God and love of others that comes from a heart that is pure, a conscience that is clear, and a faith that is sincere. By swerving from these. It's like a car going down a road and going "Er," to the left, right? So we're seeing here, swerving from these, swerving to the left, and let's see where it leads. Certain persons by swerving from these, it says, have wandered away into what? Vain discussions. Vain discussions. So in other words, they had wandered from love to vanity. Love to vanity and vain discussion. So does that sound familiar? Like I'm not talking about in your life, um, maybe, but does that sound familiar to something we just read? I want you to think back and if you have your, your, your thumb or device, think back to what we read in Mark. What happened in Mark? Is this not exactly what we saw with the scribes and Jesus? So Jesus is getting peppered by issues and debates and, dare I say, vain discussions. He's getting peppered by them. And what does Jesus do? He says, I hear the vain discussions that you're trying to get me to step into, scribes. Again, my, my footnotes here. But then he goes in and he says, but the most important thing is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. What did Jesus do? 
Jesus stepped in and took them, took us from the vain discussion back to love. Took us from vain discussion back to love. Here's my argument, church. What Paul is trying to do in 1 Timothy and and Timothy is doing here in this letter is the very same thing. To take the church back from vain discussion that they had swerved from and to bring them back to love. It's the same thing that we see here in our text. And I want to be really clear here. This is kind of an aside, but it's an important one. Please don't hear me wrong. Um, We as Christians can have great and robust conversations about things, Um, dialogues, debates. We can talk about the finer points of theology. We can have great discussions around eschatology and soteriology and great conversations and ask great questions and dive into what I believe this hard text really means. We can do that together without slipping into vanities. These can be good. They can be really good. Um, In other words, not all discussions that we have are vain, okay? Not all discussions we have are vain, but church, at times, we can so easily lose sight of love and we are here in the vein, in the vanity. These discussions can so quickly turn to vanity when all of a sudden these issues that we're dealing with become like the clubs that we use to just nail people with. We can so quickly turn from love um, to vanity and divide and speculate. And, and so hear me, the problem is not with the issues that we might be interested in. God can handle, church, your curiosity. Praise God for that. He can handle it. He can handle the questions. And the church needs to be the place where you can ask the questions. We can come around these things together in community and ask these questions and work through these things in our doubts and our curiosities. In fact, um, let me share an example. I had the privilege of sitting with our youth uh, this week on Wednesday. And... uh, it was awesome. And as a part of the meeting, uh, part of the reason I was there was a Q&A. And uh, they, the students gave questions, and they were fantastic questions. And then we got to have a dialogue around these questions. And it was, it was incredible. Um, it was a great night. And you know what it did? Is it modeled for us as the church um, what Christians can and should be able to do, which is to have full, robust, God-honoring conversations around issues and curiosities that we have about the Word of God. They modeled this without wandering off into vanity, into vain discussions. I got to see it modeled in our youth. But often, we miss that, and, and we see a heart problem develop. And I don't want us to miss this. What we see in our text as we, as we look at, at Timothy, what we see in our text is not an honest search for Scripture. That's not what we see in our text. What we see in our text at this early church, it's not a wrestling with good questions like I saw Wednesday with our youth. That's not what it was. Um, what we see in our text and in this early church is a heart problem. 
The problem is that the aim, the bullseye, the target had moved. It had moved. It was no longer love. Church, if I could just sum it up, it was pride. That's what we see in this early church. In fact, listen to this. Um, Here in this text, if we look at verse 7, certain persons were desiring to be teachers of the law. That sounds noble. It's not in this context. See, this is pointing to the fact, so to be a teacher of the law, by the way, is a huge deal back in this context. A huge deal pointed to the Jewish rabbis who would give themselves to the study of the Torah. They would give themselves to it. They would become kind of Old Testament masters, if you will. And um, they, would, they would kind of be viewed as the wise sages of the age. And more than that, these teachers of the law, because of that, would also often have positions of power, positions of influence, and uh, often they would be given the mic to speak, so to speak. They didn't have microphones back then, but you know what I mean. They'd be given the opportunity to teach. And um, right here, we see the problem. They weren't actually wanting to do all the work required to being a teacher of the law, did they? No, no, no. Um, to be rabbis, they weren't enrolling in rabbinic school. That's not what we see, pouring over the Torah. Here's what they wanted. They wanted all the power and all the influence without any of that work. How do we know this? They wanted to come off as a wise sage. But here in our text, they were talking about things they didn't understand. They were really confident about things that they couldn't fathom. If you look, it says, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or things about which they make all these confident assertions. And I love that last, second to last word, uh, confident. How often. There's nothing like being confident in ignorance. (laughs) Nothing like it. And that's what we see here. How many times do we do that? Confident in our own ignorance. I love the way that Dr. Um, um, Leah Tom, or Thomas Leah says this. Uh, this is really good. I had to include this. The false teachers were not primarily butching grace by adding law to it. That's not the, what they were doing. He says this, but they were an ignorant group of idle tale tellers. Tongue twister. They weaned the mind of their listeners away from the simplicity of the gospel And by doing this, by doing that, they miss both the truths of the Old Testament and the teaching of Christ. Nailed it. What he says is they missed it all. They missed it all. They wandered away from the simple gospel, and in doing so, they missed it. And so Paul here charges Timothy to address these certain persons here in this church who have wandered away into vain discussions and wandered away from the aim, the bullseye of love. That's what we see here. And and I want to come back to an important phrase that we first saw in our text last week. Um, It says, charge certain persons. This is verses, the second half of verse three and four, not to teach any different doctrines. We've talked about this in order to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies. But then he says, which promotes speculation rather than stewardship that is from God, and that is by faith. So here is the the heart of the the problem here. There is a profound difference 
a profound difference between stewardship and speculation. There's a profound difference between these two things. See, as a steward, we have been given something. And so we've been given it, so we speak in confidence about it. Why? Because it's been given to us. But in speculation, we speak about what we do not have, what has not been given to us. And so we might have some confidence, but it's a false confidence. Why? Because we haven't been given it. It's a projected confidence. How many know it is um, not sinful to be curious? I'll keep going back to this. That's not a sin. But at the same time, how many know that it's not for you to know everything? It's not. Um, There are some things that are above your pay grade. There are some things that you have not been given to know. One of my favorite examples of this is actually Acts 1, when Jesus is about to ascend and the disciples come together and they ask, Lord, is it time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what does Jesus say in that moment? I love it. He says, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons. That's God's business, not yours. I love this because it reminds me, whether we like it or not, there are things that are not for us to know because we are not God. We're not God. And this is faith. Faith is not about knowing everything. Faith, there's a certain degree of trust that comes in the not knowing. Faith is, is the trust in a God who holds everything in his hands. Not that we hold everything in ours. So this is faith, and and it's just like in the garden. I keep coming back to this, but if you notice, Adam and Eve weren't given the full why behind why they shouldn't go to that fruit. They weren't given like a step-by-step explanation of why that's bad for them. They were given the word of God that said, don't do it. And theirs was not to know, it was to trust. To trust. We can be curious. We can search out scripture. We can ask our questions. But listen, we do so knowing that there are things, there are times that we do not know the answer. I think we get that, but I want to highlight something. There's a flip side to that. Because there, at the same time, are things that are given to you. That you are to answer. That you are to know. This is the difference between speculation and stewardship. This is it. Um, Stewardship reminds us that we can't play the ignorance card and say, that's not, it's all too great for me, it's all too, no. Stewardship reminds us that God has given us things in clarity through his word that we are to know, that we are to trust, that we are to share with our kids, that we are to share with our neighbors. We are reminded, stewardship reminds us there there are things out of our control, that's speculation, but stewardship reminds us there are things that have been given to us, that have been placed into our hands. Here's my argument. We get in trouble when we flip these things, and we do it a lot. Here's what I mean. When we try to be really confident about our speculations, and at the same time get all timid about our stewardship, we have flipped it. We have missed it. 
Um, speculation leads us to false confidence, but our stewardship should lead us, church, to true confidence because we have been given the truth. We can know it. We can walk in it. The gospel is true, and it, the scripture says that it's all we need for life and godliness. We have his word, and so we can stand on it in true confidence. So take all the speculations, church. We can stand on the gospel, and we steward the gospel. That's what's ours. Um, speculation leads to false confidence, while stewardship should lead us to confidence. But I gotta say, it's more than that. Speculation often leads to pride. We see it in our text. It often leads to pride. Stewardship, however, leads us to humility. There's a vast difference. We see in this text, pride leads these certain persons in our text Um, to elevate their theories and their abilities and their speculations to kind of elevate themselves. But stewardship is completely different from that because as a steward, we aren't elevating our own theories or our own um, abilities or speculations. We're not elevating ourselves. We are elevating him, our master, as a steward. That's our job. That's our thing. So we elevate him, which means Whereas we give ourselves to speculation, we often wander into pride. But as we give ourselves to stewarding the gospel, I got to tell you, church, it leads to a profound humility because we understand the truth of what the gospel says, that it's not about us, that it is about him. And ultimately, I'll go back to where we started. What's the telos? What's the final aim? What's that bullseye? What is it? It's love, love of God and love of others. I gave you an example of, uh, of Acts 1. I want to give you one more. I have time. I'm going to give you one more example. And I think this one's better, honestly. So um, Job. Job and his friends. I'm not going to go through all the details of what happens. It's a long book. Um, but roughly 35 chapters is spent with Job and his friends around a campfire. That's how I imagine it. Um, literally just verse after verse, chapter after chapter, talking about their theories and their speculations. Right? They're filling in all the gaps that God didn't fill in, but they're going to fill it in. They're going to come up with all these plans and all these responses. They're filling in all, they're speculating wildly. Okay? At the end of the book of Job, what happens? Well, God shows up. And when God shows up, he responds. To be clear, God does not answer the questions that they have been wildly speculating about. He doesn't give them the answers. What he does is way better. What he does is he shows up and basically says, listen, I am God and you are not. Where were you? Where were you guys when I was creating everything out of nothing by my word? Where were you? I mean, God has a sense of humor as you read Job. He really does. Um, where were you when I set everything in motion? That's right, you weren't there because why? You're not God and I am. That's what he says. He drops that. It was an amazing scene. And where does it leave Job and his friends? I gotta read Job's response. This is from the very end of Job. Job answered the Lord and says, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Listen to this. Does this sound familiar? Therefore, I uttered what I did not understand. (laughs) Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here I will speak. I will question you. You make it known to me. 
I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself. Listen to this and repent. Repent in dust and ashes. So here's the thing. Whether you are Adam and Eve in the garden or Job and his friends around a campfire or the disciples around Jesus in Acts 1 or the early church in Ephesus that we read about in 1 Timothy. Whoever you are, we are tempted to speak about things that are far too great for us. Far too great for us. Things we don't understand. Things that aren't given to us to understand. We're tempted to speculate. And here's the the danger. And at the same time we're tempted to do that, we're also tempted to ignore the very things that are given to us to steward. We speak boldly about things that aren't ours. And yet we are timid on the things that are ours. When this happens, we need to do three things. And I'm going to end with this this morning. We need to do three things. First, we need to do what Job does. If you remember, hearing all this, he, uh, therefore I despise myself, it says. And he says, I repent in dust and ashes. The key word here is repent. We need to repent when this happens. We need to repent. Repent is to acknowledge and turn around. I've used this example before. I think it's, it's, it's fitting for our text today. But it's, it's like when you're driving in your car and you go the wrong way and your phone politely tells you you're going the wrong way. Proceed to the route. Make a U-turn, whatever your device politely tells you. So what repentance is, is on the one hand saying, yes, I am going the wrong way. My phone's right. I'm wrong. I'm going the wrong way. Repentance is saying, God, I have swerved. I am off track. Lord, forgive me. I've wondered. But here's the thing. Repentance is then making the U-turn, swerving back onto the course. This is repentance. It's a turning. We must start here. God, we have swerved. Where have we wondered? We're going to acknowledge that, confess that, and then we are going to then proceed to the root. Repentance, correcting the swerve. This means we put down our speculations, we repent. But secondly, we need to return to the gospel. Um, We need to come back to the simple gospel. It is enough, and we need to speak it over ourselves over and over and over again. Scripture says that we are all sinners, fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of that sin is death. In fact, that's what you see right now as you look into this world and as you look into your own heart. You see that brokenness. Scripture says this is the brokenness of sin. But Scripture also says that the gift of God is salvation in Christ. Scripture says, as we sang this morning, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Scripture says that God demonstrated his love for us while we were dead in our sin. Christ came and died for us. God is perfect. We are sinners. The gospel tells us how God has solved that dilemma. And it's not about us over here doing X, Y, and Z to get to God. No, no, no. The gospel is all about what he 
has done to come to us. This is the gospel, that Christ came, lived a perfect life, the life you could not live, dying the death that you deserved. And in that work, Jesus took all of, his, all of your sin on his shoulders, all of it on himself, and in exchange, giving you his righteousness. So that in Christ, because of his work, I got, I, you gotta hear me, you are perfect. You are perfect. Why? Because he is perfect for you. That's how you are perfect. More than that, after Christ completed his work on the cross, he breathed his last, he gave up his life, was placed in a grave for three days until on that day, he rose. He rose. And I don't want you to misunderstand me, not as a floating spirit, a floating orb of light. That's not how he rose. Not just spiritually. Jesus rose physically, bodily, flesh, real. He rose, appearing to hundreds of people, hundreds of people, and promising two things to you. One, he's coming again. And two, you will rise just like him one day. This is the gospel. Jesus conquers death, hell, and the grave, and we have life eternally and abundantly through faith in Christ. We are saved by the grace of God alone. Faith in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. He has done the work, and it's ours to respond. And as we do, the Bible says we will be saved. This is the gospel. This is what we stand on, church. This is our everything. It never gets old. And you will never graduate. There's no grad course after this. This is it. In fact, it's our task until the day we see him face to face to continually and daily come back to the gospel. Because like those who came before you, we've talked about some of them, and like those who sit beside you, you are prone to wonder. You are prone to swerve. And as we, when we swerve, we repent, we return to the gospel. And then lastly, we need to remember our aim, our aim of love. And we need to ask ourselves one question. What does love require of me? We need to repent. We need to return to the gospel and then remember our aim. Love is our mark. So what does love require of me? We need to remember what John says in John 13. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Um, By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So no matter what situation you find yourself in, what does love require of you? What does love require of you? Um, What does my love for Jesus and my love for others require of me in the situation that I find myself in? Church, I want to be a church that takes this question seriously. Because Jesus is talking about us here together. Jesus loved you selflessly and has called you. I won't have you look around and be awkward, but to love each other that way. This is our calling. What does your love for Christ and your love for others require of you? Love is our aim. And so we repent We come back to the gospel, the simple gospel. 
And we ask, what does love require of us?